You are listening to episode number 79 of Unfolding Words, God Ain't Stingy. My name is Antracia Moorings, and welcome to my weekly podcast where I share biblical truth to offer light for your walk and life for your soul. We are in week number two of an 11-week study on the book of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. So if you're joining for the first time, you can still jump in. There's still time. You can purchase the study guide on Amazon. It's called Dust and Divinity, and I'll leave a link in the show notes. So you can just pick up, ask a friend to join you, and dive right in. So last week, as a review, we learned in chapter one that God has created the garden to be a temple for his presence. And the language surrounding Moses' construction of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus and God's creation of the world in Genesis chapters one and two mirror each other, showing that this is indeed a temple for God's presence. In Genesis chapters one through three, in the account of creation, creation is presented as one large temple and the Garden of Eden as the Holy of Holies where God's presence resides and where Adam, human, was made for worship. So the temple is often described with garden-like elements that further associate Eden with creation in general. So Eden was seen as a prototype of the temple. And then in chapter three, we'll see that God is walking back and forth, which is also how God's presence is described in the tabernacle in Leviticus 26, verse 12 and Deuteronomy 23 and 14. So in chapter one, we see that Moses makes this change in how he refers to God. There's a change between chapter one and chapter two, starting at verse four. In chapter one, God is exclusively referred to by the name Elohim. But in chapter two, starting at verse four and for the remainder of the chapter, he's called the compound name Yahweh Elohim. So Elohim is the general name for God and is used in the context of God as creator. Elohim is actually a plural noun indicated by the I am, which we see in the words cherubim and seraphim, which refer to divine beings. And like most words in English, Elohim can mean several things. Sometimes Elohim refers to plural gods, little g, as in you shall have no other gods before me. And at other times it refers to singular God, capital G, as in in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So Yahweh is God's personal name. And it's used in the context of God having a relationship with his people. When God goes about creating mankind, it is Yahweh who does this. When the Lord is personally involved in the lives of his people, Yahweh is the proper way to designate him. And in our English Bibles, Yahweh is translated as Lord, all caps. So whenever you see that in your Bible, know that that is Yahweh, the personal revealed name of God in the Old Testament. Yahweh is a proper noun, the personal name of Israel's God. And Elohim is a common noun, which is often referred to any deity. So in Genesis chapter two, verse two, we see that there are a lot of references to God. Clearly, Moses is making a point for his readers. And it says, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Moses wants us to know that this is God's world. This business of creation is his business. He's stressing the fact that God's work is completed and only God alone did it. 
So chapter two opens with the seventh day, the Sabbath. So what does it mean for God to rest? He's not a human like us, so he doesn't need to get in a cat nap. He doesn't need to sleep at night. So if God is all powerful, why is he resting on the seventh day? He doesn't need to regain strength in any way. But what it simply means is that on the seventh day, he stopped working. He finished the work of creation and he rested in order to show man what to do. In Psalms 132, it says in verses seven and eight, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. So God is showing that he is creator and king through creation. He has ceased from working and is enthroned. So Sabbath rest includes the idea of God being enthroned. This is the final step of Sabbath rest. Creation week is topped off with a maturation into the Sabbath. Entwined in this idea of Sabbath rest is also holiness. They're connected. Holiness is connected to rest, God's rest. And this connection is everywhere, wherever you see godly rest mentioned in the Bible. And rest isn't just relaxation. It's not about kicking up your feet and throwing back a cold one. Sabbath rest is worship, relaxation, holy relaxation, and enthronement, which is the primary idea. On the Sabbath, Israelites did not do any work. So the primary purpose of Sabbath isn't just relaxation, it's enthronement. It's looking back on all the work that you've done and being able to enjoy it. The first example is of God sitting enthroned on creation. And whenever you see Jesus sitting down in the New Testament, in the Gospels, it's a picture of God being enthroned. Jesus is enthroned on creation. And usually when he's sitting, he's up in a mountain. If he's teaching on a mount, then he's enthroned. You have a picture of that in the Gospels. And when the priests finished their work, God's presence rested in the temple. We have so many images of enthronement. And also part of this is that we have a salvation Sabbath that we have in Jesus Christ every day now through faith. Having come to Christ, we have found rest for our souls. And in Hebrews chapter three through chapter four, these passages speak about the glorious rest in the life of the world to come, not just the salvation that we have now in this life. So in this section of Hebrews, it compares the visible church to the children of Israel in the wilderness. So a lot of them perished in the wilderness because they didn't have faith and they gave up the rest of the promised land. And even today, many in the church have no faith and they fail to enter the rest that Jesus provided for us. Hebrews 4 and 11 says, let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So the point is that even after the Israelites entered the promised land, there still remained a rest for the people of God to enter into. And that heavenly rest we have yet to enter into will then be the time when we cease from our work as God ceased from his work on the seventh day. And only after we finish our race here on this earth will we fully experience the rest that God enjoyed on day seven. It's just a wonderful picture of what God has in store for us. And there's a difference about the seventh day in Genesis two and three that is not mentioned about all the previous six days. In Exodus chapter 20, it says, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
he set it apart as a day to remember. So holiness or being made holy simply means that you're set apart for a specific use. That's what the Sabbath was. It was set apart, a set apart day for a specific use. So God blessed and set apart the seventh day for that example of rest for us. Now, Adam wasn't commanded to rest, but the children of Israel were because they had seen God's saving hand in their deliverance. This is a picture of things to come. So today, you and I now rest from the work of salvation because Jesus Christ did the work for us. We don't strive. We don't keep laws and commandments to earn salvation. Jesus died on the cross for that. He did the work and the same with God. God did the work of creation. We did nothing. We simply accept the good gift that he gave us and enjoy it. And then we come to verse four, which is a transition phrase. This phrase, these are the generations serve as a transition since the original manuscript would not have had any way to have transitional markers like we use today. So generations is seen 10 times in the book of Genesis, and it serves to say this is wrapping up what just happened. Now let's look ahead. So Genesis 2, 4 says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So what does it mean for the heavens and the earth to have generations? The phrase is used to introduce the offspring or the descendants who come from a certain person. Now in Genesis chapter 2, we're not looking backwards because there are no descendants to look backwards to. We're not summarizing the events of Genesis 1 with this transition phrase. Instead, Genesis 2-4 is looking forward and preparing the reader to hear the genealogy and the generations of the heavens and the earth. So we move from a panoramic zoomed out view to a zoomed in view in verse 5. It's a picture of God's personal involvement. Genesis 2 gives us a continued picture of God's care and provision for his creation. God's sovereignty is revealed in where people lived, what they were to do with their lives, and what they were to eat. God cared about every detail and made provision for it. How is the creation of Adam different from all other creation? So the physical body of man, the word man comes from the Hebrew word, which is Adam. Adam came from the ground, which is the Hebrew word Adama, which is a feminine word in Hebrew. We understand how many people refer to earth as mother earth. So without being superstitious or worshiping mother earth, we can appreciate the fact that the earth was a type of mother to mankind, to Adam. And if anything, we can see how those who were pagan and worshipers of the earth merely twisted and perverted the truth of the Bible that the earth gave birth to Adam with her dirt by the breath of God. The man's heavenly father was God who breathed his breath into man's nostrils and the man became a living soul. So as the view changes, we see God getting his hands dirty. He gets down and forms Adam instead of simply naming him like he named everything else. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So now we turn our focus to the tree of life, which was created for eternal life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which will have wisdom, which Adam and Eve will need for later. So the garden is where God wants to sit and to eat with man, thus the fruit. 
He wants to have communion with mankind. We see Jesus sitting and eating with people a lot. This is just a picture of what God wanted to do in the garden initially. And the imagery in verse 10 serves as a model for future temples. There are jewels and gold. It sits on a mountain, the garden, and because rivers are running out of it. And the garden temple faces east. We see this in verse number eight. The garden is tied with the future end time temple, which also faces east. So Adam's purpose within the Garden of Eden was to cultivate and keep the garden. He was the world's first gardener. And the pairing of these two Hebrew words for cultivate and keep can also be translated as serve and guard. And they occur later in the Old Testament when referring to the Israelites serving and guarding and obeying God's word. And it refers more often to priests who serve God in the temple and guard the temple. Adam was the first priest who was to guard the garden temple where God's presence resided. God lovingly provided for man a purpose and provision. God is concerned about every area of of our lives. I know I keep saying this, but it just blows me away. He gives Adam a job. And he gives him things to enjoy for pleasure. So God tells Adam three things in Genesis 2 verses 16 and 17. The Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Only one restriction was given. He should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was God's command that Adam stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this tree is tied to King Solomon's prayer request in the book of First Kings. So what was God's ultimate purpose for this tree? Why would God plant this tree in the garden and then command them not to eat from it? So First Kings 3 and 9 says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people. This was Solomon's prayer. Adam and Eve would need the knowledge of good and evil to rule as God intended for them to rule. That was his purpose for them to grow into maturity, to be able to rule and take authority. But they decided on their own, instead of God providing when they needed, that they would take it for themselves. So Adam and Eve were to mature into the knowledge of good and evil from being the priest who obeys and does to a king who rules and makes decisions based on wisdom like Solomon. But we'll touch more on that next week. And then in verse 18, God mentions the phrase, not good. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Then God provides companionship for Adam in the form of Eve, but he didn't just plop her down in the garden. He puts on a production as only God can to show why things are not good for Adam. He paraded the animals in front of Adam so that Adam would have a felt need. So as Adam is naming these animals, he sees them each with a companion and realizes that he's the only one without one. So Adam takes over the role that God formerly had, which is naming and naming equals authority. So we see Adam is already walking in the authority that God had intended for him. And naming is a kingly role. We see that God changes Abram's name to Abraham later on in Genesis and Sarai to Sarah. We see that Pharaoh changed Joseph's name 
later on in the book of Genesis. And then in the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar changed Daniel and his friends' names. Naming the animals is just an example of Adam walking in his kingly authority. And as Adam was busy doing what he was called to do, a light bulb moment came. There was no suitable helper found for him. This was the first not good. So God put Adam in a deep sleep and the woman was created with flesh and bone from Adam's side while he was in this deep sleep. The woman's being came from the man's and the man's came from the earth. So Adam was formed while the woman is built. So that word, you may have the word made in your Bible translation, but the Hebrew word means built when it comes to Eve. She was built just like the tabernacle, not built like physically, (laughs) not like a brick house built, not like that, but built like the tabernacle. Woman is a symbol of the bride of Christ, which came out of Jesus's death, which equals a deep sleep. So when Adam woke up, The two became one, but it was a different oneness. It was a marital union. And this is the same thing that happens with Jesus and the church become one. So the man was formed from the earth to till the ground, to serve and to rule the earth. And the woman is built from the man's side to bring life and communion through their union. So the biblical account of the relationship between man and woman is descriptive. It's simply showing you what's happening rather than prescriptive, meaning telling you how you're to act in the world. But we do know that men and women are created and equipped for different purposes, and they'll naturally exhibit different strengths and preferences and behaviors. So woman is a mirror image. Woman was not created to be the exact thing that Adam is. God in his goodness created a compliment for Adam, one who was corresponding to him, not with equal roles or strengths, but with complementary characteristics that were evident in their physical makeup. Eve's softness complemented Adam's strength. He then went on to name her woman. She was the crowning jewel of creation. So women never doubt who you are You are the crown jewel of creation, made last in all of the glory that God created. So seeing that Adam and Eve have no earthly parents, why would Genesis 2 and 24 command a man to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife? So remember that the book of Genesis is written to the Israelites. Moses is writing to them who just came out of the Exodus and God wants to show them that they are set apart people. And that he has a purpose and a design for marriage. So chapter two ends with the first marriage. God intended for marriages to be marked by nakedness. We'll talk more about that next week. So he wanted man and woman to not be ashamed and open with each other. Wanted there to be a oneness among them when it comes to marriage. There was to be a leaving. Adam didn't necessarily have to do this, but he would have to teach his children to do this. And cleaving, which we will see Adam do later in the next chapter. So now Adam is in the perfect place to recognize Sabbath. He's done his work. God has presented him with Eve or the woman. And the stage is set for Sabbath rest for both God and man. Sabbath is a gift from God. It shows his generosity towards us. 
So many of us may not celebrate or acknowledge or observe the Sabbath, but it really is something that we should incorporate into our lives. And it's not going to look like what the Jewish people did in the Old Testament. God created a need for Sabbath rest deep within us at creation, which is why it's so important. You were designed to need a reset in your week, not just for your body, but for your spiritual health as well. So when you honor the Sabbath, you declare your faith in God. You say once a week, Lord, I trust you. And you also declare to those around you that the Sabbath is a sign of the promise made between God and his people. In Exodus 31 and 13, it says, God spoke to Moses, say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbath. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come. So you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. So the Sabbath is set apart, it's made holy, and God's people are set apart for the Sabbath. And then centuries later, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he spoke these words to those religious leaders, the Pharisees, who created these hoops to jump through and these systems of rules to make sure that people observed Sabbath correctly. So instead of becoming a day of rest, it became a day of striving to remember all of these rules and regulations that you couldn't do. Jesus explained that God never meant for the Sabbath to be so complicated. It was simply to be a day of rest. But man got their hands in it, distorted it, and messed it up. The Sabbath is a gift you should accept gratefully, not one that you should try to do perfectly. Sabbath was built into creation and something that the ancient Israelites were used to. They had this day where they ceased from striving, toiling, and working. They trusted that even in the rest, there would be enough and that things would not spiral out of control if on that Sabbath day they did no work. You do not have to be a hamster on a wheel. You do not have to work 24-7 in order to get ahead. That's not even the way that God designed your life. There's a trust involved with Sabbath. And God commands his people to keep the Sabbath holy because he had a deep love for his children. He knows how we're formed. He knows how much work we can handle and how we need to be rather than do sometimes. The Sabbath is a reminder that your days are ordered by God, not by yourself, It's a reminder that even though there will always be more to do, there will always be something to check off on your to-do list. There's always laundry waiting, meals to be cooked, chores, errands, but there will not always be more time on this earth. So we have to take the time that God set apart for us to rest and that God cares enough for you to help you rest should be enough encouragement for you to take advantage of that. So ask God how you can honor the spirit of the Sabbath without being legalistic, but honoring it in a way that receives it as the gift that it is. You'll be surprised at how you can work Sabbath into your life. That's it for chapter two. I pray that you were encouraged and that you found something that you can apply to your life and that maybe you even learned something new. And If you're joining in on the study, I'd love for you to share a screenshot of the study on social media and share something new or insightful that you've learned this far. You can tag me on Twitter at unfolding underscore words or on Facebook or Instagram at unfolding words. I would greatly appreciate that. And if you have any questions, you can join my Facebook group at unfolding words 
or leave a comment on the episode's post. I'll leave a link in the show notes. So if you have any questions, I will definitely answer those for you. So that's it. I'll see you back here next week for Genesis chapter three. Thanks for tuning in. Until then, may God's word be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. God bless you.